John chapter 15. And this morning we're going to look at an exposition given by Christ of this analogy of the vine here in John chapter 15. Verses 1 through 8, he taught about this vine and used it as an analogy. In the last couple of weeks, we focused on some of those elements. The, the vine itself, Jesus calls himself the true vine, is an analogy of Jesus Christ. He is the vine, the true vine, in the sense that all the symbols pointed to the reality and it is Jesus Christ. He's standing before them now and making that known. The statement, I am, along with it, then also emphasizes his divinity. The vine dresser, as we learned, was the father. Someone who has a purpose and a plan for all things. It refers to the very decree of God the Father who organize and orchestrates all. Branches, of course, are people. And there's two types, those that bear fruit and those that do not. Those that don't bear fruit are brought to judgment. Those that do bear fruit are actually pruned so that they will bear more. Fruit itself, we mentioned, are simply the righteous work of the believer produced by the Holy Spirit. Now that the analogy is established, then Jesus moves forward to give some teaching on that. And we'll look at the section here, verses 9 through 17. And it gives you an idea of what some of Jesus' teaching is like. Now this isn't all of it. There's much more. But this is what is indeed sufficient. John will say at the end of his gospel in John 21, 25, that there are many other things that Jesus did. There are many things that he said. And were every one of them written down, he says, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. But these things are here for the believer. They are those things that are sufficient. And so, when we look at his teaching here, this is what is indeed essential, and it is for his disciples. His methodology, though, it seems to be in his teaching from chapter 14 through 17. This is the discourse or the discussion, the teaching that he gives his disciples prior to his crucifixion. This teaching here, it kind of circles around, if you will, in repeating themes, looking at them from a different angle and a different direction. Me, I'm used to much more a linear approach, and particularly I'll prepare my preaching that way to go from one idea to the next. But that doesn't seem to be his teaching style. Instead, it's going quite around. And so we might jump around a little bit from time to time. And some of these themes you'll hear again just from a slightly different angle. That's what's characteristic of these chapters. This is a critical time, however, in the disciples' life and all who would indeed be a disciple of Christ in the future. The emphasis here in this idea of this vine and the analogy that is given, the emphasis is abiding in Jesus Christ. And we noted that in the first eight verses. True Christians do abide in Christ. They obey him in abiding in him. So this word abide and the idea of abiding in Christ, I argued, is in two senses. There is one sense in which it's given, and it's given in this text, that it is describing the union of those that are genuinely in Christ they do abide with him or are united to him in salvation. That is, they're made alive, alive in Christ. A new creation, if you will. Passed from death to life. 
And the life source is Christ and therefore abiding in him. This is the analogy of these branches that find their source of life attached to the vine in this analogy. They remain in Christ. And there is a sense in which this abiding is mutual. Notice verse 4 of chapter 15. Christ says this, Abide in me, that's the command, and I in you. And so it gets this mutual idea. You're not isolated, something just for you to have to do. You have to recognize also that it is Christ who is actively abiding in those that are in Christ, and hence a mutual sense. Those that are in Christ in a salvific sense... In him, abiding him in that sense, will abide in him, that is, remain in him, stay in him, and endure in him. And can you see the critical reason why? Because, verse 4, Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is actively abiding. It is Christ who has promised earlier, and I will raise them up on the last day. That is his promise. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Abide in him. And he in you. Your salvation then, beloved, is not contingent upon your ability to abide. It is contingent ultimately on Christ's, his promise, his faithfulness. And even at times when we find ourselves temporally unfaithful to him, he never is. He remains faithful even in our unfaithfulness. He will accomplish his work. He will abide. Now there is a second sense in which this word abide is used. And there kind of interchangeable, interwoven, if you will, to some degree, but just wanted to clarify, to abide in Christ means to be alive in him and him in you. But beyond that, it is in a second sense in which then those that are abiding in Christ are called to work that out, if you will, in their life. Look at the following phrase here in verse 4. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. To be fruitful, to see the fruit of the Spirit, if you will, work out its way in your life. Here, for those that are alive in Christ, they're called to engage, if you will, to, Paul would Treat it this way, work out your salvation in fear and trembling because it is God who works in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. And so there's this mutual aspect, but here is a synergistic call to bear fruit by abiding in Christ. Apart from Christ, you can do no thing, nothing. So what does it look like to Abide in him, and here it's fleshed out, beginning in verse 9 to some degree. And watch how he changes the wording slightly by adding in love. He tells his disciples to abide, this time, verse 9, in love. Here's the exposition of this vine analogy. Abiding in Christ's love, that concept is just another way of expressing the idea of what it means to abide in Christ in a fuller sense and from a different angle, if you will. I don't think he's bringing up something categorically different, but really providing an expansion, a fuller way of thinking, a different angle of what it might mean to abide in Christ. He gives a fuller explanation or exposition, as I've called it, of this previous section. So let's just read it with that in mind, verses 9 through 17. John 15, 9 through 17. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be 
in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You're my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask in the Father's name, uh, ask the Father in my name, should I say, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Let us pray. Father, indeed, I pray for your saints, that we would learn to indeed abide in your love this day. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Much content here in this exposition, and I affirm what John would say, that the books couldn't have enough books in this world to hold all of the content, so I don't intend to unfold or unpack all of it. I hope you spend time reading through the Gospel of John as we're going through it. But I do want to note at least four things about abiding in Christ and the way it's described here. Just for note, we'll mention them. The first one I kind of alluded to in verse 9 is love. One of the characteristics and benefits of obeying this admonition and thinking through that as you abide in Christ, as a believer in Christ, is this concept of love. Christ says simply, abide in my love. I want you to note here when this is mentioned, he describes the quality of the love that he is talking about. Verse 9 As the Father has loved me. Stop, think. Here Jesus, second member of the Trinity, points to the Father. He talks about love and his love and calling his disciples to remain in that, to abide in that, to make that be a part of your worldview and thinking. In what way would you describe it? As the Father loved me. How would the Father love the Son? How about perfectly? How about intimately? That is a close relationship. In fact, none closer. How about personally? This is the Father and Son. We call them the persons of the triune God. Continually, never ending. And here's one. Eternally. That is, from the beginning. This is how the Father loves the Son, and that's only some aspects of it. You can expand that and think about it in your own mind. Maybe write, jot something down. How would the Father love the Son? Absolute perfection. No greater relationship between the Father and the Son. And here's this from the very beginning, eternally. This is how then Christ explains to his disciples who were there. And for all who would be disciples, that would be for you. Put yourself in here if you're a follower of Christ. You're called to abide in this life. This is how Christ loves his own. He says that, so note here, have I loved you? Now, I want you to keep your finger or mark something, piece of paper in John 15, because we're going to jump back. But I'll allude to a passage in Ephesians a couple of times. And so, just a couple of verses, but I wouldn't mind you seeing it, marking it, so you can go back to it and note the connection, because it is good to think about this. We think about the love of God in Christ Jesus, and specifically, Christ saying he loved you. 
Notice verse 4 in Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1 and verse 4. He talks about the choosing of those that are in Christ, those that are abiding in him. He chose us when? Verse 4 of Ephesians 1. Before the foundation of the world. That is, before anything was actually created. This choosing was done. That we should be, here it is, three things. Holy, blameless before him, and in love. Now some of your translations make love in love part of the next verse. But there's no punctuation in the original language. In context, I think they go together. The ESV I'm reading does put it together. But it puts a period there and that might be confusing. The natural reading is these are three characteristics of whom Christ has chosen. Before the world began. He chose those that would be in him to be holy, that is to be set apart to him, to be blameless, that is to be made absolutely, perfectly righteous before him. It talks about the state of perfection which he will accomplish. We call it the glorification of the saint. And note this, it is done, all of it, in love from the very beginning. And Christ says, I want you to abide in that love. It is comparable to the love of the Father for the Son. Did I say eternally? Did I say from the beginning? Do do, do, do you see that here? Christ's love for his disciples don't begin when they just try to make a better choice in their life. It begins at the very foundation of the world. It doesn't end if you decide to even stray a bit and wander away. What kind of love is it? It's the same kind of love that the Father has for the Son. It is is perfect. It is not conditioned on your behavior, if you will. It is based on his sovereign choice. He chose. He decided to make, to set apart, to make blameless. This is the doctrine of what some people refer to as eternal security. Of course it's eternally secure because his love never fails. His love never changes. The Old Testament constantly talks about it. And as Rodney read this morning, every time I see that word, the steadfast love of the Lord. This is what he's talking about. A faithful love that is beyond what we can imagine. That certainly will not end. It isn't based on the quality of even your affections for him. It is based on his love. The love that the father has for the son. The love that the son has for the saints. The chosen ones, if you will. Those that are in Christ. Those that are abiding in him. He's demonstrated that love back in John chapter 15. We're going back to Ephesians so we flip back and forth if you want. But hold your fingers there. It's demonstrated in time because, you know, this idea, this abstract concept of love might be hard for us to grasp since we're physically bound, if you will. But he says in verse 13 of the chapter, the section we read here, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friend. He demonstrates what kind of love he has through his personal sacrifice. So I've loved you, he says in the text. And at this, I have to stop and think. And myself and my studies, I thought about the love of God in Christ for, yeah, for even me. Not based on who I am and what I have merited or what I've done, but based on his affections that are, that are poured out. And based on, on that position, that condition of Christ's eternal love, then this command to say, abide in it, to remain in it, to think about it, to endure in that thought of Christ's love. 
Beloved, you could not be, and, and I know this might be hard, we have a tendency to diminish, I'm not speaking of your, your intrinsic value at all, I'm just thinking, thinking about the love of God of Christ, in Christ poured out on the saints. You, beloved, could not be loved any more by anyone else. This is the greatest love. It is love which binds the heart of a Christian then to God. It isn't the idea that God made a bunch of create creatures and the creation itself. And that he just likes to see some of his objects. Oh, look at that. That worked out good or that's doing all right. Rather, the redeemed, those that are abiding in Christ, are actually beloved by the Father. They are beloved by the Father because they're beloved by the Son. And the Father loves the Son. And as that relationship works out, that's the love of Christ in us. If you're in Ephesians, look at verse 6. How does this get accomplished again? I'm not suggesting that I'm a lovely person. On the contrary. But Christ is lovely, is he not? Can you think of anyone more lovely than Christ? Christ is lovely. Verse 6. We would then praise God for his glorious grace. Glory is just the beauty of the perfection of his divine attributes. And what's on display here? Because he has done what? He has blessed us. Blessed us how? In the beloved. Do you remember Rodney reading about these blessings? And it mentions a lot in, in the Psalms. Blessings that are given. Blessed is in... This isn't all the blessing, but here it is. Blessed, as he read in Psalm 32, is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord counts no iniquity. He has granted us that blessing in Christ who died, who atoned for sin. It is Note in Ephesians 1, 6, he has then blessed us. How? In the beloved. Who's the beloved? And your text probably capitalized here. Because <laughs> you know who it is. It's, it's Jesus Christ. He's the beloved one. Then those that are then said to be in Christ then are, are one with the beloved. And as the Father might eternally and perfectly and continually love the Son. And so God loves those that are in Christ in the same manner because they are then said to be one with the beloved. You couldn't be loved anymore. When you feel unloved and forsaken... That can happen in this temporal life, but in those that are in Christ are eternally loved with the greatest love. Now here you may want to turn to a companion to Ephesians. Ephesians, Philippians, then Colossians is the next book, chapter 3. Colossians parallels Ephesians. Very similar cities and similar time that Paul wrote. And similar subjects, expanded a different way. <clears throat> Here he takes these same concepts to the church of Colossae and calls, calls them to consider this concept of abiding in the love of Christ in the same manner. Verse 12 in chapter 3 of Colossians. Colossians 3, verse 12. Then what do you do if you... If you if you are aware of this love of God in Christ Jesus for those that are abiding in him, then you would respond by continually abiding in him. And he uses a slightly different analogy of clothes, as it were. Verse 12, put on then. Ephesians 3.12. Put on then as, as God's chosen, holy, and beloved. Now, you've seen those three ideas before, haven't you? Remember? Chosen, holy, 
and beloved, just a different way to express the same idea of saints then who are set apart, chosen by God, and are truly beloved. Recognize first that you're abiding in his love, and in response, what happens then, put on, if you will, the clothes of compassionate hearts. Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against one another, what is your response? You will forgive. Why? Because this is what Christ does. You need forgiveness? Go to him. He's faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. For those that are abiding in Christ, in both senses, right? In both the salvific way and the sanctifying way, and someone comes to say, will you forget? Before they can get the words out of their mouth, they're forgiven. Why? Because I'm abiding in Christ. The love of Christ is, is what is going to cause this to happen. Forgiving one another. This is these are this is the fruit of faith. It is love expressed in the life of the believer, and it then turns around, if you will. Above all these, put on love. Verse fourteen. It binds everything together in perfect harmony. That's what he's talking about. Abide in Christ's love. Put that on. That's the sanctifying work. Oh, you have it salvifically. It'll never leave you. You're always loved by God. If you're a saint, the call is then to, to embrace it, if you will. Put that garment on every morning. Put on the love of Christ. And what is the result? Then peace will rule in your heart to which you have been called to be in one body, that is in Christ, and, and thankfulness then responds. He says it a different way than just allow the word of Christ to dwell in you richly. Teaching and admonishing one another in wisdom and responding in great songs, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. It, it, it is a time of, it's an expression of worship. Thankfulness in your heart to God. And then this will tie it in to the same kind of teachings Christ has said. I hope you've noticed in John 15, even though we might not get to all of it. But then he says, then ask whatever you, whatever you do. Whatever you do, it, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The call is then to abide in this love and by doing so you will respond in obedience. Back to John chapter 15. In verse 10, 15, 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my, my love. In other words, you, you allow the words of Christ to dwell in your heart. You obey him. You follow his word. This is what it looks like then to abide in his love. Because the son abides in the father's love. He's doing the father's will. And therefore, to abide in that sense, in Christ's love, you obey him. You follow his will. This is not legalism that compels us to be obedient to Christ, it is love. Do you see the difference? It's not a list for which you need to pull out and check off every day. It's a matter of the heart. And the more in love you are with Christ, the more you abide in Him, you'll respond in those things that He has commanded, all of them. All that is expressed in the entirety of God's word. But I'll give you a summary hook. Two of them to put them on. Okay, Many, many things. But if you, if you need 
a summary of what is Christ's love that you're to abide in. I'll just allow him to explain it, and I'll quote it for you from Matthew chapter 22 in verse 37. In response to someone who questioned him on that very thing, what, what are the greatest commands then? That is, what, what should be priority or what is a way to, the way I think about it, I look at it as, as uh, hooks to hang ideas on. Matthew twenty two thirty seven. Jesus says this, number one, you shall love the Lord your God. <laughs> love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, with all your mind. That's the first and greatest command. Greatest command in the sense that that's, that's a major hook to hang your information on. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. That's what he's saying. So if you need something to carry about with you, love God, love God with all your heart. And then love your neighbor as yourself. Abide then in Christ's love. To abide in Christ's love means that you will, beloved, abide in his joy. Look at verse 11. These things I have spoken to you. I'm at 1511. These things I have spoken to you that, number one, my joy would be in you. And two, your joy may be full. This joy in you relates to abiding in his love, which ultimately will result in joy. To abide in Christ is to abide in the joy that is in Christ. And by joy, most of us can identify with that. We don't need a great definition of it. It's essentially speaking more of anything than the, the, the emotional state of happiness. Are you happy? Abiding in Christ provides a peace of mind which, w- which will bring about a, an, an emotional state of happiness even in unhappy circumstances. You have very little control about a lot of circumstances that's going to befall you in your day. But note this, by abiding in Christ, beloved, you can have great joy in you because it is his joy. And whatever joy you experience, happiness, use that word, it will be full. This idea of full, it conveys the idea of a never-ending source. Most of our sources of happiness, what we might look forward to, maybe a great meal, maybe a great experience, some sort of entertainment or whatever. We can only, first of all, handle so much of it. Second of all, uh, it's finished at some point in time and it's ending. What Christ offers is a wellspring of life, if you will, a happiness that has no end. It, it is continual. It's non-contingent on the circumstances that can change. It's contingent on the love of Christ, which never changes. So our communion with Christ then... Abiding in him brings about a personal joy that will overflow in our connection to him and our communion with him, particularly in prayer. And he mentions that a number of times here, as I I mentioned, chapter 14 through 17. He's going to go over these themes time and time again. In 16... 24, for example, a similar idea. He says, pray, come to me in prayer. This is part of abiding in Christ, to be in communion with him, receiving his word and praying. Ask, he says, and you will receive so that what? So that your joy may be full. Your joy on E, or a quarter of a tank, fill it up. Go to Christ. Abide in Him. Abide in His love. Come, come to Him and, and receive the joy that is in Christ. This, in, this internal joy in abundance that He offers. 
And his admonition is to, to receive this joy which will overcome whatever states of mind in which joy is destroyed. And I stopped here in my study to think about some of those things that might kill joy and you might come up with a different list, that's fine. I'm not trying to be um, comprehensive. I will mention one that's specifically put in, the, in this text in John 15, but uh, a couple of other big ones as I thought about joy destroyers that Christ has destroyed. And I think a big problem a lot of folks have now is guilt. Think about it. Guilt. Guilt for what you did and guilt for what you should have done. Guilt for what you can never overcome. Whatever that might be, know this, that in Christ, Romans 8, there is therefore no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Think about that. There is no guilt in life. There is no condemnation for your guilt. Certainly you should have paid for it. Maybe you will retain a certain degree of scars for whatever you did or whatever you should have done that you didn't do. But in the end, there's no guilt because Christ has taken that away. And beloved, you have to, to, re, to have your joy full is remember that it is this happiness in Christ that he has given you. He has actually paid. He is actually reconciled. He is taken care of whatever that is that might haunt you. I like the way a contemporary artist put it in a song that he wrote. Aaron Keys. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you're coming from. It doesn't matter where you've been. Hear me, this is Christ speaking, tell, hear me tell you, I forgive. You're not guilty anymore. You're not filthy anymore. I love you. Mercy is yours. You're not broken anymore. You're not captive anymore. That is captive to sin. You're not. I love you. Mercy is yours. Can you believe this is true? And this is the part of the problem why you must remain in Christ. In his joy. In his happiness. Can you believe this is true? Grace abundant I'm giving you. Paul would say in Romans 6 where grace where sin was, grace abounded even more. Whatever it is. More abundant than you know. Cleansing deeper. All was paid for long ago. There is therefore no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Abide in that, beloved. Another joy killer is fear. Joy is often destroyed by fear. Fear of circumstances. Not our reverential all of God. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about just anxiety over world events, things that go on, maybe tragedies that you're going to face, the difficulties. I hate getting that call late at night. I don't know what it is on the other end and praying that it isn't terrible news or something I can deal with. But God is sovereign. He is the vine dresser in this analogy. Everything has a purpose and God is in control. And he has not given us a spirit of fear. He has given us a spirit of power. A spirit of love and a spirit of a sound mind. 2 Timothy 1.7 Joy can be destroyed by guilt, by fear. It can be destroyed by a poor self-image. 
And I'm not trying to do some sort of psychoanalysis. I'm just saying those that are abiding in Christ truly are a new creation in Christ Jesus. Paul would say that to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5. The old has passed away and all things have become new. Think on these things. Abide in that. Remain in that. In the newness that Christ has made you. And finally, joy is often destroyed by just contention and personal conflict that fall our way. This is stated specifically in our text in John 15. And Look at verse 12. He says then to his beloved disciples, Love one another as I have loved you. He said that more than once in this section. Personal conflict can be very difficult. It can destroy the joy that you might have at your home, at your workplace, even within the church. But it is the love of Christ that will overcome that contention. To love how? As Christ has loved. Why well, I need to move on. We spoke of abiding in, in his love and his joy. And note verse 13 in the friendship in Christ. That's what he has invited us to be. And this is a unique circumstance where Christ calls his disciples and said, Hey, you're friends. In fact, he demonstrated his love for his friends for atoning for their sin in verse 13. And then goes on to say in verse 14, You're my friends if you do what I command you. The if you do is not the contingent on becoming a friend of Christ. It is those that are friends of Christ will be obedient to him. They will be in that direction of their life. It is a descriptive state of those that are abiding in Christ of those who truly love Christ. It is one of the ways that you can measure and examine your own self, not to look back on some particular mantra you might have prayed or some sort of ritual you might have been engaged in, but do you want to follow Christ? Do you want to obey him? That's the imagery there. In 1421, it it describes that person who obeys him. It's him that loves me, he would say. Jesus refers to his disciples as his friends here in verse 13. He's demonstrated the greatest act of friendship in reality by his humiliation, I would say, just taking on the form of a servant to begin with, but beyond that, then to sacrifice his life. It is our union with Christ, then, that enables our friendship with God. Notice verse 15. He says, no longer call you servant. That would be a term for slave, which, again, if Jesus is Lord, we do confess that. He is Lord, and we are servant in that sense, certainly. However, here's the unique thing that Christ has, made, has done, <coughs> which brings about this friendship. I have called you friends, and here's why. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You're a friend of God, a friend of Christ, because of his revelation to you. This is kind of a unique thing to say to a bunch of Jewish folks here when it was originally given. Because they could probably only think of very few people that might have done that kind of personal intimate relationship of being a friend of God. Maybe it was Abraham, certainly, who was called a friend of God. But now he's saying, Jesus here is saying to all of them and all who would follow Christ, for all who abide in him, you are his friends. And what is the distinction here of friendship? The core of it is that you know him. 
You know his person. If you remember back in verse 7 in the same chapter, he says, to abide in him, he says, and my, what? Words abide in you. That's the self-disclosure, the divine revelation that is given. Now, I don't know if I told you to keep your finger in Ephesians 1, but you should be able to find it pretty easy. So jump back there. Because I want you see that in the text. Paul calls this a mystery. That is, previously unrevealed truth. When Christ came... He gives his word to these apostles. There's many things that weren't known until he made them known. And hence they have a unique relationship of friendship. Verse 8 of chapter 1 in Ephesians. He lavished it upon us in all wisdom and note this insight. Making known to us the mystery of his will. According to his purposes which he set forth in Christ. My son and I were talking about this other day as far as a world view, and maybe you should stop and think about it. Some folks have no idea of what's going on. No wonder they have so much angst and so much anger, right? Have no idea. But as Paul would tell the church at Corinth, we have the mind of Christ. The answers to all of it It is right here in his word. If you're going to be a friend with me, we've got to sit down and talk about all kinds of stuff. There are different levels of intimacy, isn't there? Right? But if I don't tell you stuff about me, it's going to be hard for you to be my friend and vice versa. Well, I can assure you God knows absolutely everything about you. And he is, Christ has made known that which is sufficient for you to know to be a very friend of God in his word. It would behoove you, beloved, to open it up to make it part of your daily consumption, your daily food, as the psalmist might say. This is a unique privilege for those who abide in Christ, who abide in his friendship. And finally, back to John 15 in, in verse 16. I would say the abiding is his love, his joy, his friendship. And, and this one might seem a little strange, his calling. He throws that in there. And I know Jesus kind of moves, weaves this tapestry about quite a bit, but here it brings this up again. I, I, you didn't choose me, I chose you. Perhaps, again, to uh, remind them a bit of their humility that it is all Christ. But what is he emphasizing here? Been the, you didn't choose me, I chose you. That is a call to what? Salvation. A call to Salvation. He chose those particular disciples who would follow him and he would choose all who go on. And as I mentioned, this choice began before the world began. The love came about before the world began. The friendship was was, um, planned out, intended, this disclosure. And now this calling to both salvation... But beyond that, it is also a call to service. Look at verse 16. He says, uh, not only have I called you out of the domain of darkness, but I've also appointed you. That is each one. Each one that is in the vine, I have appointed you to do what? To go. That's the idea of going on mission. This is to be proactive in your life. Doesn't mean everyone's going to go to the uh, to uh, worlds unknown, to to Asia or Africa, wherever you might imagine. Some certainly will. And if you have that calling, answer the call and go in that regard. But but going is also included in all of your life. 
that you would go wherever you might find yourself. And, and if, you, if you don't see that mission, pray that it might become abundantly clear. It might just be a friend or a classmate or <clears throat> a co-worker or just some random person that you run into. You have the love of God in Christ Jesus. You know, the, the greatest happiness that ever could, anybody could ever imagine. The greatest friendship. And Christ has called you in this life to go. To do what? To bear fruit, it says. To bear the righteous works of Christ in your life so that what? It would remain. That is, it would abide. It uses the same word. So that what you do in this life that it will remain. The preaching of the gospel to your children, that it would endure, that it would remain, that it would be fruitful beyond this time. Would you like to work that out in your life? All of that? He gives the answer to it in verse 16. Ask and receive. Do this in, ask the Father in Christ's name. And he, beloved, will grant you all of it. Concludes this section in verse 17. These things I've commanded you so that you will love one another. This concept of of love for one another has been repeated three times already. It's a demonstration, this fulfillment of this command to love one another It is ultimately going to be accomplished by abiding in Christ. Abiding in his love. Abiding in his joy. And abiding in his friendship. And finally, expressing it by abiding in the calling that he has called you. Let us pray. Father, indeed, I pray that we would truly abide in Christ and may much fruit abound in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved, we like to take a moment now, we typically do, to privately, right where you're at, not to me, but privately where you're at, to respond to Christ in the way he's spoken to you through his word Today, throughout the service, take a moment to reflect and think on these things. If anyone needs counsel or direct conversation, any of the elders are glad to help after the service. But take a moment right now to think and pray on these things.